So if you're new to us, welcome. Uh, we, we don't define the church as a building or a time slot, but really a people that gather because of Jesus. Uh, and so we love him and we serve him and we, we want to lift him up this morning. Uh, we've been doing that actually by going through a series uh, in the book of Colossians, uh, which is a very small letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Colossae that uh, if you don't know anything about the city, it was uh, a city that used to be a very influential one in the Roman Empire. And then over time, it really declined in its influence. And so it was a group of people that used to be on the top, so to speak, in terms of the world's uh, power structure and have sunk down. And uh, so they're at a very interesting time in the life of the city and the church because they're going, are, are we still significant? Um, it, does God really uh, value us? Does he see us? And Paul is writing a letter to them to say, not only does God value you and see you and, and want to, to see you mature and grow as a church, uh, but he has a specific plan for you to do that. And in order to do that, you're going to have to see Jesus as kind of the center of everything and not get distracted by other things. Because what had started to happen is, and it happens all the time in life and in our world, you start out and you, you come to know who Jesus is and you, you, you find it amazing. And I, this was my experience when I first came to faith in Jesus. It was like I had stumbled upon something that I thought, wow, everybody should know about this. Like this is amazing to know that God, the God of the universe, the one who created everything, is actually accessible and knowable and that He loves me and cares for me and sacrificed His life on my behalf so that I could have a relationship with God. When that dawned on me as a new believer, I thought, this is incredible. How could anything ever compete with this or take its place? And then what happens over time is that other things start to come in. Uh, Whether it be our everyday lives or other teachings or a whole host of other things and influences come into the picture and all of a sudden in our hearts we start to compete with you know between Jesus and all these other things. And and Paul wants to make sure that the church knows there is absolutely nothing that could compete for your affections that could hold a candle to Jesus Christ. There's just nobody and nothing that can do that. And so he's calling them back if you will because the church has been around for, for about 4 years. And uh, he wants to make sure that they understand there is no, there's nothing left to, to discover that's better than him. And so it's important for us, too, and that's why we're reading through the letter. And last year, or last uh, week, I'm sorry, we looked at a section of Colossians where Paul uh, said, make sure that you remember what it is that happened to you when you received Jesus. Right? You, we, we said last week, you can't... Uh, continue to run a race that you haven't begun. And in order to begin a race, you have to understand what actually happened to you when you received him. And so if you remember, we we talked about how what happens to us when we receive Jesus is that Jesus, who is the fullness of God in bodily form, he is the fullness of everything God intended for us as humans to be. He's it. And he takes his fullness and he transfers it to you when you receive him. So when you're, I mean, think of yourself as somebody who's empty. You get filled to overflowing as you receive him, the fullness of God. And we talked about specifically three things that God, when we were empty of life, God made us alive in him. And when we were uh, 
full of condemnation, when we are kind of empty of us being blameless before God, God filled us with his blamelessness. He took away our condemnation and he gives us blamelessness instead. And at last, we were enslaved to a whole host of things called sin, and God made us free. This week, today, God, uh, Paul is going to continue on that theme of freedom because he wants to make sure that the church understands just how free they are in Christ because they've, they've received him. Uh, because here's what's been going on over time. Other teachers and influences have started to come in and they've started to uh, claim a whole host of things that they need in addition to Jesus. So what they're saying to the church is, yeah, he's great and all. Don't, you know, don't get us wrong about that. But there's a whole lot of other things and other teachings and other rules and other obligations that you need to fulfill if you want to really be full. If you want to really grow, if you want to really mature. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to confront some of these competing philosophies that are going on in his day with the gospel. And by the way, as the church, the reason that Paul is doing this in this way is because he wants not just to convince them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is better, He wants to train them in how to do the very same thing so that as they start to receive other teachings that he doesn't include in this, they would start to be able to filter which ones are actually true of who God is and which ones are false and need to be rejected. And that's something that we should be growing in our ability to do. And the only way that you can do that actually is by getting to know the real thing. You know what I mean by that? So if if you see a whole bunch of, uh, you know, I don't know, if you're going to a, a museum or something and you don't know anything about art, but you go into the museum and you see, like in South Jersey, and you see a painting of the Mona Lisa, if you don't know what the real thing looks like, you see the, the, the imposter and you go, that's a really good painting. Maybe that's actually the original. Because you have no frame of reference to decide whether or not it's the original thing or the or, or an imposter. And Paul's saying, we want to make sure that we understand what the real thing is because the more you get to know the real thing, the more the imposters become evident. And as the church, we should be growing in our ability to do that constantly. And so here's the thing about other things that, that are going to come along and compete with Jesus. Many of these philosophies and teachings and things that could be added to him are going to sound to us, if we don't know the real thing, they're going to sound to us like they could bring us freedom and maturity and growth, things that could be good for us, but in the end they actually enslave us and keep us from experiencing Jesus. How do you know the difference between one or the other? That's really the question that Paul wants them to be able to answer so that they can... Uh, kind of stand on their own two feet because Paul is thousands of miles away as he's writing this letter to them. Uh, so, And it's the same for us. Any religious philosophy apart from Jesus himself is only going to ins- serve to enslave us and keep us from experiencing him. So let me ask you this, because we, we often dialogue uh, in our gatherings over the message, and so you get to respond uh, with whatever you think is, uh, is on your mind and on your heart. 
What are some of the competing philosophies that, that are present in our day that are temptations to add on to Jesus but actually lead us away from him? What do you think are some of the ones that are going on right now? Prosperity. Okay, what do you mean by that? It's good to be prosperous, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, if you have faith in Jesus, then it will lead you to have earthly riches. And if you don't have earthly riches, then you must not have enough faith. Did you ever hear that message? It's on really late at night on TV, about 2 in the morning. (laughs) I'm sure it's on a bunch of other places. But it draws big crowds, right? That kind of competing philosophy, which has little to do with what Jesus said life is all about. And it's not that God doesn't want us to be prosperous and to experience the blessing of having things. He just doesn't want those things to replace him. And yet often if there's a philosophy that's really popular in our day and specifically in our culture because our culture is so enamored with earthly wealth and prosperity and things that those things actually replace God. So God becomes a means to an end rather than an end in himself. So rather than getting Jesus as the ultimate aim of our life, which is the thing that God most wants for us, we get something that Jesus can give us in the form of wealth and prosperity. And so if you don't have that in addition to him, you must be doing something wrong. That's kind of the way the philosophy goes. What, what else is out there? What's that? Power. How's that? A comp- yeah. So, the, so Jesus kind of will lead you to have earthly power and influence. It's a similar message, isn't it? But Jesus actually said, if you come to me, you need to lose your life to find it, Right? It's the least of these in my kingdom that are the greatest. So if you want to become the greatest in my kingdom, become a servant of everyone. That's how you become the greatest. It's contrary to the, to the message that we often receive, right? Which says your standing and your influence and your position and your title are actually what give you what, you're, what is giving you most sense of... What else? Yeah. Yeah, it's like it, you need to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus and then once you come to him, well, then we can't talk about anything that's wrong because everything must be perfect at that point, right? Um, And that keeps people from experiencing life in the body because we hide our real selves from one another rather than exposing ourselves and and our need for him. And and yet we keep that bottled up. I was actually explaining that to the church in Haiti because um, to them that's a foreign concept because their needs are on the surface. Like, you live, your house is right next to your neighbor's house and you have no windows, you know, like, um, so your life is just exposed to everybody else, regardless of the condition of it. There is no hiding it. And so, um, I I said, it's, it's weird because I come from a place where people use their things and their isolation, their individualism to, to keep their needs below the surface so that nobody knows they have a problem. I said, and in doing so, we actually collapse in on ourselves. We're the loneliest, most depressed people there are on the planet because we think we need to have it all together. And so we hide our real needs from other people and we don't actually get, you know, other people speaking Jesus back into our life to help us grow in our time of need. And and so we end up being isolated and, and collapsing. It's a lie. It's influenced more by our culture than it is by anything that has to do with the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, right. So, so I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus and also because I do this or don't do that. Right? So 
I, I feel justified as a believer, not just because of what Jesus has done for me, but because I read my Bible and I pray a whole lot. Or because of what I don't do. I, I don't drink alcohol and I don't see those kind of movies and I don't go over he, here and, and mingle with those kind of people. And because I do these things and don't do these things, I know that I'm a believer in Jesus. That's backwards. Actually, we're going to talk about that because Paul addresses that specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of a self-condemnation, right? So that that kind of philosophy says, well, yes, I know that Jesus suffered on my behalf and and took away my sin, but he wants me to really suffer, too, in order to earn that salvation. Right. And so we'll beat ourselves up or feel guilty about things that we've done, not realizing that Jesus's sacrifice removed the condemnation so that we just have to experience joy. We actually don't need to beat ourselves up or feel self-condemned. Even when we do fall and even when we do struggle, that's, that's a, something that you know, you think would be uh, part of being a Christian, but it's actually enslaving behavior. Because the more that you're entrapped by a sense of guilt over the things that you're doing or not doing, the more you're actually concentrating on yourself and what you need to do in addition to Jesus to earn salvation before him, which is something he never says to do, ever. Yeah, so the, they need to meet some kind of test, whatever our specific test is, for what a good person looks like. They need to meet our standards in order to, you know, earn God's graces the way that we have, which we really haven't. <laughs> um, and the funny thing is Jesus destroyed a lot of those because you look at the people that he hung out with and they were the ones that were off the list on everybody's list, you know? The, the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He's dining with them. He's eating with them, which is a sign to say these people are acceptable based on what I've done. So I can eat with them and and be in relationship with them. And those were the things that Jesus got the most resistance towards because there were a group of people that, whose all, all their sins were on the inside, looking at Jesus hanging out with people who all their sins are on the surface and the outside. And they're going, those people don't belong, Jesus. Don't you know? And Jesus says, I do know. That's why I'm eating with them. It's amazing, right? There are a whole bunch of things that we could go on and on and on about um, different kind of philosophies, specifically religious philosophies in our day, and they sound a whole lot like they'll give us freedom. They sound a whole lot like they'll bring maturity and grow us up and make us acceptable before God and all kinds of other positive things that will bring into our life, but in actuality, they're opposed to Jesus. Completely opposed to Him. And Paul is going to identify a few uh, as he's talking about our freedom in Christ. And so uh, we're on page 822, if you're going to follow along with the Bibles that we've got. Um, but we're going to start in Colossians 2, verse 16, and go to, to verse 23. So here's what he says. Therefore, and therefore, because you've received Jesus and you've been filled by Him, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. 
Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual. So there, there are a few things that Paul talks about here uh, that we are to be watchful for that are things that look like they bring freedom but actually bring enslavement and keep us from experiencing Jesus. There are three kinds of activities, if you will, or mentalities that are inferior to the reality of actually what we have in Jesus. And so he compares each of these three things to the fulfillment of freedom in Christ. And each of them um, are going to seem like at first maybe they're things that were in Paul's day but not so much in ours. But as we look at them a little bit, you're going to find out that actually they're, they're things that we struggle with each and every day. So those three things are um, that, that we are free from religious rituals, religious experiences, and religious rules. I tried to alliterate all three with R's. It just didn't work out. So you're going to have to remember that E in there. Rituals, experiences, and rules. The first one, that we're, we're free from this need to define who we are based on the religious rituals and traditions that are present in our day. And so uh, what that means is we're free from ritualism. And what ritualism is, is basically this. It's what you do defines who you are. As you practice certain rituals and and rites and, and traditions, it equals what you are. What you do equals what you are. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand that that is completely backwards thinking. And so he says this. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or in regard to a religious festival, to a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so apparently what was going on in Paul's day is that there was a people, a group of people, or a person at least, in, uh, in Colossae who was pressuring the people within the church to attend all of the Jewish religious festivals as a way of proving their faith in God. So the the church, this group of people who've come to know Jesus, they aren't participating in the Jewish festivals. And the Jewish festivals were, were the way that people kind of determined whether or not you were a good religious spiritual person. So like... How in the world can you consider yourself a good religious spiritual person if you don't kind of attend our meetings and our festivals? If you don't eat the, the meat and the, the, the wine and everything that is prepared for you because those are symbols of how good a person you are. 
How can you claim to have a connection with God if you don't participate in these things, if you don't do these things? Don't you know that Jesus is not enough to define who you are? So let me think, I mean, that was going on in Paul's day, but what about our day? What are some of the religious rituals and traditions that people often look to in our day to define you kind of as a believer in Jesus or a spiritual person or a good person? What are the things that are, are people often consider as necessary to being filled with God's presence and on good terms with Him? Okay, good. Yeah, church, your church attendance, right? And there are, are big parts of the church where if, if you miss a Sunday, then watch out, right? Because somehow you've, you've fallen into uh, some kind of, you know, your, your, your name has been tarnished or you're in disrepair. You know, you need to earn your way back through good, you know, attendance. Because we're checking those things, right? And making sure all the boxes are checked. And if your box isn't checked on Sunday, well, you've got a whole lot of boxes to check now from now on. Yeah, how much money you give, right? So, like, if you, the offering plate goes by and everybody's putting in and, and they see how much you put in and it's less than everybody else than what they put in, then, yeah. And we use that as a marker, right, for our spirituality and how good a person we are and how much God must love us based on what we give back to Him, right? It's completely backwards thinking, by the way. We don't give out of obligation to God. We give because He's blessed us and given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's why the Bible calls us to be joyful givers. So if you're not joyfully giving, then please don't give. You're absolutely under no obligation. What else? (laughs) Yeah, right. The number of hats you wear, right? And the number of meetings you attend, the number of things that you do for the church is a way to define who you are. Yeah, what else? They're going to start to flow any second now. I'm going to have to cut you off because you're going to think of confession, yeah, to another person, right? You cannot receive the fullness of Jesus if you have not confessed your sins to someone who is in a position to receive your sins and ask God on your behalf for forgiveness. Do you not know that Jesus is our mediator between us and God? But we use that as a marker for who we are, right? Or at least the church does generally. What else? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So our service to other people. And we think, I'm a good person because of what I've done for the least of these. Rather than saying, like, I was one of the least of these when I didn't know Christ and He came and filled my life up. Therefore, I enjoy, get to, it's not a have to, but a get to serve others in love because of what God has done. We turn that into an obligation. I am somebody because I give my life for this cause. And, and that, that uh, causeism, if you will, I don't know what to call that, is rampant in the church. Defined by what we do rather than who we know, which is Jesus. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things that you could consider being part of that. Um, yeah, so th- it, which is interesting, right? Because all of those things that you just mentioned were set up in order to help us be directed to Christ, and yet they oftentimes take the replacement of Him. And so, rather than kind of coming on Easter because you're you're filled with Jesus, you want to experience Him. You come because it's an obligation, and it's on the calendar. And your family always did it, and you know 
your parents and their parents, and it's always been part of the tradition of your family. And so we replace him with the thing, right? So it's funny because we, they, in some sense, they help direct us to him, but then they overshadow him in a lot of ways, right? And so, I mean, there's a whole host of things that we could continue to talk about, but Paul wants to make sure that we understand that if we as people are getting our delight from or, or getting our, our more energy out of or more fulfillment from, anything other than, to, than Jesus is to get more from kind of being with a person's shadow than the real person. It's a little bit like if I were walking around my house and going, um, yes, I, I live with my wife Mandy, but I enjoy being with her stuff more than with her. You know, so I like, I just spend time in her closet <laughs> rather than in the living room. That would be weird, right? A little creepy. <laughs> like, I just enjoy being around her jewelry and not really around her. Or it, it'd kind of be like, you know, if we're, as, as we got to know one another, as we were dating, you know, uh, anticipating, you know, the person that you might marry someday, and then you, you meet that person, and then you, you go, well, it'd be, I'd love to be in a relationship with you, and it'd be great to get married someday and have the reality of an actual married life. But I just, I would rather live in the what if of a person rather than the actual person. So like somebody comes along that actually wants to date you, it's like a miracle in and of itself, right? And you go, you know what, I, I just, I like the idea of a person rather than the actual person. It's crazy, right? And yet that's what Paul is saying when we're more enamored with the ritualistic stuff of what we do rather than the person, then we're getting more as if, as if there were more to get from Jesus' shadow than from the real person. It's like following him around trying to grab a shadow rather than holding on to him. And Paul is going, that would make sense if the shadow were all that were available to you, which was the case before he showed up. But he's here in the flesh among you by His Spirit. And you have access to Him, the reality of the fullness of God in your life today. Are you going to be more enamored with the other things than with Him? When you put it that way, it's kind of crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, I think uh, this is a bigger problem than we give it credit for. And we do this all the time. We, We walk around thinking that our doing will equal our being and so we, we try to do things to gain God's favor, thinking that the things themselves are worth more than the person. And, so, and you know this is true because when you don't participate in the things, you'll feel guilty for it. I, I know a lot of Christians who will beat themselves up for the fact that they haven't read their Bible in three days. And I'm going, do you realize that Jesus has actually cleansed you from the obligation of reading your Bible every day? You don't have to submit yourself as if it were a ritual to do that every day and then then go, well, I haven't done it for three days, therefore I need to ask for forgiveness for three days to work my way back into God's good graces. And if I have three days in a row of reading my Bible, then I'll get back to where I was before. That's a shadow of the things that were to come. A shadow. You're free, Paul is saying. You have the reality of who he is. 
Therefore, you're not under obligation. It's a get to, not a have to. You get to open the Word of God and receive who He is this day. And if you don't do it this day, you don't have to beat yourself up about it tomorrow. You get to open it up and receive Him tomorrow. And if you choose not to do it then, He is still with you. Over and over and over, extending grace to you each and every day. That is the reality of who Christ is. Not based on what you do for Him. See, this is the crazy thing about rituals. The rituals that Paul is addressing were actually meant to give people something that they didn't already have in terms of their relationship with God. So the the rituals were set up, in a sense, to, to provide things like forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and access to His throne room in prayer and a new beginning and a second chance at life and a sense of God's presence being with them. They were... They were set up as as shadows of what was to come, of all of those things. But they never were meant to replace the one who was to come. Because the truth is, all the things that I just mentioned are things that if you receive Jesus, you have in Him fully and completely, and you need nothing other than Him to receive those things. Why would you turn to a ritual to give you a shadow of what you can experience the reality of in the risen Jesus? It's in Him that you have forgiveness of sins. It's in Him that you have reconciliation with God. It's through Him that you have access to God's throne room in prayer. It's with Him that you have a new life, that you're a new creation. It's through Him that you get a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And you don't have to wait for the calendar to come around to a specific ritual to get it, you can ask for it in this moment in prayer and have it. See, it's in Him that you get God's very presence in your life. That's why the writer of Hebrews mentions it this way. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Thousands of years, there was a priest who came and offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And it never really changed them. But, when this priest, that is Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made whole. You want... The, the reality of what God wants for you, you can either continue for generation after generation to submit yourself to rituals that will never provide it for you and can never take away sin, or you can come to the great high priest who did it once for all forever. Why would you put more confidence in the other stuff than in him? So, not only are we free from the need to define ourselves by our religious rituals, what we do, Uh, But we're also free from defining ourselves based on our religious experiences. Um, So if ritualism is defining yourself by what you do, then experientialism is defining yourself by what you know. What experiences that you've had that equal what you have accumulated in terms of your knowledge. And so Paul is addressing that and he says this, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, 
and they're puffed up with idle notions about their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So apparently there was a group of people who were uh, participating in the worship of angels. We're not quite sure exactly what that means. It can kind of mean one of two things. Either it was a group of people who uh, considered angels to be kind of above them, and so they would worship these angelic beings as a way to gain protection over their life. So they would run to a specific angel um, that was said or known to have certain powers over a specific area in life, and they would run to that specific angel, pray to him. Sometimes they would have a medallion that, was, that would signify uh, being kind of uh, covered or that they know this specific angel and that that person would help them through their, their everyday life. Um, the second option is that um, there was a group of people that claimed to have some kind of inside knowledge or access to the way that angels worshipped God. And so they would teach other people based on what they've seen about the way that angels worship and say, if you really want God's good graces, if you really want to know who He is, if you really want Him to answer your prayers, you need to do it like this because that's the way the angels do it. You see what I'm saying? Both of those things are, are essentially saying I've seen and know something for myself. I either know something about angels or I know a specific one. And based on what I know, I have superior knowledge to what you have. Therefore, I'm elevated. So you all should come to me for this knowledge rather than to Jesus. See why this is a problem? It's a big one. And Paul's addressing that by saying, To claim that you have some kind of special knowledge based on your own experience is to actually make yourself the head of your own nourishment, which is to separate yourself from Jesus as the head. So there is only one head to the body. There is only one head to the church. And and that term head means not just authority over, but think of the way that your body works. If you want any nourishment, any sustenance, anything good to come into your body, where does it have to come from? Unless you're hooked up to an IV, it comes through your mouth, which is on your head. It's the only kind of entrance into the body for your specific nourishment. And so Paul's saying, if if you're going to go the route of your own experiences, if you're going to claim to have some kind of special knowledge then essentially what you're doing is saying, I've got another way to nourishment than Jesus himself. I've got another access point to him, which is to say, you're on your own. You're absolutely on your own because you've separated yourself from the head who is Jesus. See, if Jesus is the head, then all of us, myself included and every other leader here, are no more than other parts of the body that look to the head for absolutely everything. See, there's a danger in in a lot of churches and a lot of places, and we can do this in our own lives, 
where we can look to people as having certain special knowledge of something and to see them as elevated and above ourselves. And so we need everything to pass through their okay and their approval and their opinion in order for it to be okay for us. And Paul wants to make absolutely sure that we understand there is no other mediator but him. And you have access to the head. All of us do. Because we all look to him. And so this is, this is particularly good news if you're kind of new to this whole thing called Christianity or the church because the gospel says that nobody can look down on you for what you don't know. Because you're in Him. And because you know Him. And in fact, those of us who maybe ha- have been around for longer or maybe could be considered more mature in Christ are, are actually have a responsibility to those that are younger to pour ourselves into you so to help you grow and to help you change and to help you mature and become who God intends for you to be. Um, this was particularly evident, and I, I was considering this uh, when we were in Haiti. Um, because So I was there six months ago and did a, a training with a group of pastors as a pilot program uh, for uh, the organization that we work through with to help train them up in a way to do discipleship that doesn't require them to to read or write. So basically, if they can learn stories and ask questions, then they can tell the story of the Bible and engage with other people that might be illiterate also to help them actually become the disciples and mature in Jesus. And so uh, all the material that we're using for this, we've written none of it. Um, But we've use it frequently, and, and particularly I was given the opportunity to use it with this group of pastors. And um, so I did that six months ago, and I came back this past time. And uh, when we got there, it was like, I, I can't understand a lot of Creole, but I can understand when somebody says Pastor Jay. And I realized when we got into the church service that they were saying my name a whole lot. Um, and... And the reason that they were saying it is because they, they really appreciated the investment that we made into their community, and they're really growing from it, and they have a lot of you know, great plans for the future uh, based on the training that they received, and we got to follow that up um, this past trip, which we'll talk about at the lunch. And I, I realized as I was sitting there, like, I don't deserve any of the praise that they're giving me. Like, I just... It, I mean, I had this overwhelming sense that, like, all that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to do is I've gotten to visit them six times now and be part of their community. All of that has been the grace of God. All of that has been Jesus just saying, here you go, you know, go and be a part of this and go and be used. And and because I don't, I, and this is what I said to them when I got up to, to preach for their church. I don't have anything to offer them other than him. Like, I don't have any special insight or, or like, you know, this great, you know, training. Or, or All I'm doing is just God is just choosing to use the time that I've been given for the investment in these people. And I was just humbled by that because I'm like, I don't have anything to give. <laughs> and I feel that way often. Um. But I want you to know, I guess, that just my, my sense of this is um, 
is that if there's anything that God chooses to use there, it's a direct result of Jesus, the head, choosing to work by his spirit to create change. And, and I, I, I was explaining this to a couple people. There, 410 Bridges using what we're doing in Shadrach as a pilot. And, um, and based on what they see in terms of the next year to three years of the, the way that the discipleship spreads throughout the community, we may have an opportunity to train um, hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands, of church leaders in, in at least 15 different communities all across Haiti over the next five years. It's, it's incredible that God might actually want to use us, this small gathering of people, to, to essentially change thousands of people's lives across the nation. I'm going, I don't deserve to be part of that. It's only the head who gives that. But I know it, it, that it's a constant danger for not just myself, but all of us to become more impressed with ourselves than Jesus. And so I was sitting there in the church service, and I'm praying to myself, God, don't let any of this go to my head. Don't let any of this, like, don't let me be enamored with anything because it's all from you. It's all for you. It's all by you. It's all through you. You're the, the, the reason for all of this and the result of all of it. See, it's a danger for all of us, particularly those of us that have been around a while to start to accumulate our experiences as knowledge and see ourselves above others. I just want to encourage us, please, as a church, let's not do that. Because Jesus said the, the longer you should be around, the longer God gives you the opportunity to do that, the more of a servant you get to be for those that are new. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The last thing that he mentions is that we are free from uh, this sense of getting a, a, a definition of who we are based on religious rules. So if ritualism is defining ourselves based on what we do, then uh, legalism is defining ourselves by what we don't do, what we abstain from. And so uh, Paul mentions this when he says, you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why as though you still belong to this world? Do you submit to its rules? And he mentions some of the rules that have been circulating in his day. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules which have uh, to do with the things that are destined to perish with use are based nearly on human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining indulgence. And so there are a, a group of people that were basing their sense of, of maturity or even superiority on how much they could abstain from. So if you thought you were spiritual by being able to fast for a day, well, I can fast for three or seven or sometimes even 40 days. And because only Jesus really fasted for 40 days, if I could fast for 40 days too, then I must be somebody. See, they were building a reputation for themselves based on what they could keep themselves from doing, what they held themselves back from participating in. And Paul says these, these kinds of activities, they have an appearance of wisdom, don't they? Let me ask, why, why do they have an appearance of wisdom? 
what gives them an appearance that you actually might be a more mature person? It, it appears, that, I mean, it makes us appear as though we're maybe more mature than we are, right? Here, here's the thing about the appearance of wisdom. It actually leads us to a place where we're more self-sufficient because it's all about what we can keep ourselves from doing. And the more that we can keep ourselves from doing it, the more we have confidence in ourselves and the less we actually need God. See, that, that's why they have an appearance of wisdom, but they don't actually accomplish anything. Because to accomplish anything in terms of gaining our freedom in Christ is to know that actually we're more dependent on Him rather than less. We need Him to a greater degree rather than to a lesser degree, as I mentioned last week. See, they lack any ability to change us. Because here's the truth about uh, legalism and rule Rules never have the ability to change us on the inside. They only have the ability to change us on the outside. If you want to know that's true, spend time with a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old, right? You can get them to obey the rules. Does it change their heart? Not a bit. You ever see a, a child sitting in time out, sulking to himself, and on the inside he's going, I'm not obeying, I'm not obeying, I'm not obeying, Right? Because on the inside, they're still the same kind of rebellious little kid, but on the outside, you're forcing them to obey a rule. See, rules don't have the ability to actually change our hearts. They only change the exterior. And God's plan, His his purpose for our lives, was never to be one where we just maintain our standing before Him by the rules that we follow. In fact, He tried that before. Um, In Hebrews 8, it talks about the first covenant that God gave with us. And it says, uh, the covenant of which Jesus is the mediator is superior to the old one. What was the old one? It was a, a, a covenant based on what we could produce for ourselves. And he says, since the new covenant is established on better promises. The first covenant was based on our promises to keep our end of the bargain. And so God said, you'll be my people and I'll be your God, but you must follow these rules. And so he goes on and says, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, with us keeping our end of the bargain, then no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. So what is he talking about? He's saying there was a covenant where I brought this group of people out of slavery in Egypt to a land that I made for them. And I said, in order for you to receive the blessings of being in this land and the relationship with me, you need to follow this list of rules in order to maintain this. And they weren't able to do it because their hearts were still enslaved. They were still the same rebellious children on the inside, even though externally they looked as free as could be. And so God says, this is what's going to happen. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. So here's the new terms. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, what's the difference between the covenant that came before and the covenant that is 
to come in, in Jesus. The first covenant said, I will be your God if you are my people. If you maintain this relationship by the rules that you follow and the things that you abstain from, everything will go fine. And there was a problem because they could never maintain the rules that God had given them. And those rules just showed them actually what was on the inside of their heart. And, and they could never change their own hearts. What's the second covenant? I will come and live in your hearts. I will come by my Spirit and actually move you to want to follow the rules because I love you. So the, second, the first covenant is God keeps His end of the bargain. We don't keep ours. The second covenant is God keeps His end of the bargain and He keeps our end. Do you see how that's different? He keeps your end of the bargain. Therefore, there are no rules for you to follow to maintain the relationship with Him. Because in Jesus, He does that for you. See, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant with God, which means He keeps your end of the bargain. He keeps the rules that you don't keep. He does the things that you do. He does not do the things that you do. And based on your baptism in Him, you showed the world essentially that you died to the need to prove yourself before God because you said, I need Him. See, by one sacrifice, His sacrifice, we are made perfect forever. So I just want to encourage you, if this morning you're feeling guilty for either the rules that you should keep but don't, the ones that you know you should not do but do, or the, the, the feeling like you should have some kind of knowledge that you don't have, please know that it's not about what you know and what you've done or what you have not done. It is about what Jesus knows. He knew your hearts before you knew you needed Him. He went to the cross before you cleaned your act up while you were yet a sinner. Jesus knew all of that about you and yet He did it anyway. It's not about what you've done. It's about what He has done for you on your behalf, in your place, through the cross. And it's not about what you have not done, but it's what Jesus has not done, the one who never rebelled and never broke covenant with God, using His life on your behalf so that you can be reconciled to Him.